All right, thanks for your prayers. Good morning. My name is John John, as Drew said, and yeah, I am the youth director over at Christ Community. It's a privilege to uh, lead us this morning in God's Word. Now, uh, Austin is preaching just one service over there today. I did not know that I was signing up for two, but uh, that's what we're doing this morning, so I'm excited about that. Um, We're going to continue on in Mark this morning, and our passage this morning comes from Mark 14, verses 43 through 52, and I think you can read along with me this morning. This is God's word, so give it its full due. It says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, He went up to him and at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege it is to be able to open your word and to read them and to listen to them. I pray, Lord, that as we look at who you are, um, how you display great amounts of love during this scene, and how you display your authority that as we um, listen and leave this building, that we can be encouraged and emboldened to live for you. I pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. It's nice being able to preach at another church because I can tell some of the same stories that I've been telling my youth ministry and friends and people at CCPC. And it will be the first time you hear them here, so it's, it's perfect. Well, for many of you, you might not know, but I, I grew up in Africa as a missionary kid, and one of the, the most exciting times as a missionary kid is when we had visitors or guests or short-term missions teams come and visit us, because as a kid, especially, that meant we were getting American cereal. But it also meant that we were going to be able to do some of the fun things that we had planned for our vid- visitors or for our teams, because coming to Africa was not a once-in-a-year type of trip. Many of the times, it's a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And so we would always send our guests or our teams on a safari. We would send people on hunting trips. We would send people on sightseeing excursions or, or any other African-type experiences we would always send them to. And so one time, one of these trips, my brother was coming back home from college, and he was bringing two friends with him. And they wanted to go on a safari, so we took him on a safari. And one of the perks about this particular safari was that we got to go down on a river cruise, float down the river and get close up and personal with crocodiles and hippos and see elephants in the water. And so on this safari, this morning we we get there, we hop on this boat, and the only way that I can describe this boat is that it is somewhat resembles a pontoon boat, a little pontoon boat with like a 30 or 40 horsepower motor, I don't know. It was so old, it looked like the very first motor ever built. It was so worked on and tinkered on that you could not see the make of the model or what horsepower it was. I mean, the captain is pulling a pull chain to start this thing. 
And about the 15th try, he finally is able to turn it on. And this big ball of black smoke comes out of it. It's loud. It starts to spit out water like motors should, but very sporadically. So we're looking at each other and we're thinking, all right, we're about to get on this river with hippos and crocodiles. And we ask a joking but very serious question. Are you sure we're going to get back? And the captain who doesn't speak very good English just says, oh, yes, yes. So we just trust him. We get on. It's great. We're having a whole lot of fun. We're getting our money's worth on this river cruise. And we are seeing crocodiles and hippos very close. And all of a sudden, though, we find ourselves in the middle of a group or a pod of hippos. I don't know how we got there or what the captain was doing, but we find ourselves stuck in the middle of a group of hippos. And the captain, who doesn't speak English, remember, goes, oh. And at that time, I think that's the universal language of we've got ourselves in a little bit of a pickle here. Because I don't know if you know this, but crocodiles and hippos, they are two of the most dangerous animals in Africa. Hippos actually kill the most humans every single year. And they do so by flipping boats. And now we're in the middle of hippos. It's a perfect situation. So we start to panic a little bit. Our hearts start to beat a little bit faster. Our conversations stop. Our hands start to get a little bit sweaty. And our captain, he starts to slowly back up, reverse. And for some reason, I don't know why he does this, but he kicks the motor into high gear and he revs it in the face faces of these hippos. Loud noise and it scares them. And it's like a movie scene, slow motion, all of these hippos all at once just put their heads below the water. Now you can't see them. You have no idea where they are. A few seconds go by, one, two, and then all of a sudden, boom, one hits the bottom of our, of our boat. Boom, boom, boom. We start getting hit and tossed back and forth by these hippos. Remember, they like flipping boats. This panic now becomes a worry, don't know what is going on. We're going to die out here on this river cruise. And we look back at the captain, and he's just calm as can be. Nothing is phasing him, and he just starts to weave himself in and out of these charging hippos. And every time they hit us, you can feel that aluminum just bend and crack. Now, clearly, since I'm standing here, we did get back safely. And we get back to the dock, and we find out that the captain did that on purpose. He does this every trip that he goes out there. He finds himself in a group of hippos, and he purposely gets them angry at us. So we were able to understand then why he was able to stay so calm in the midst of our panic and freaking out moments of tension and chaos. Now I tell that story because it resembles on a very small level the story that we have here in our text, the chaos, the tension, the heart-beating moment that we have here in Mark. Because you have to remember where we are in Mark. You have to put it all together. Because it it plays a big factor in how we're going to be looking at Jesus this morning. This is a high-tension scene. And we're going to be looking at what Jesus does in the middle of it all. Jesus is going to the cross. All right, He has just told his friends that he's going to be betrayed. He's in the middle of this internal battle, intensely praying with the Father that this cup be removed from him because he knows what's about to come his way. 
His three best friends are asleep when he needs them the most. He knows that in just a couple of minutes, all of his friends are going to abandon him and leave him. He knows in just a few hours, he is going to be put on a cross with the sins of the world laid upon his shoulders. And his father, who he does nothing apart from, is going to look down upon him with sadness and with judgment in his eyes. His father will be the one administering the penalty. And this is how, what he feels during this moment. This is what he's thinking about. Imagine just for a second what Jesus is going through these last couple of moments and minutes before the cross. All right, the Savior of our sins, he's being arrested like a criminal. He's being abandoned by his friends. He's being left alone to suffer horrible and terrible things. We saw in our text last, last week, um, actually, I don't know if you guys went through this text, but we did, uh, about Jesus being in agony. It says that his soul is greatly distressed when he's praying to his father, not because he wants an out. He doesn't go to his father and say, remove this cup from me because he wants a way out of things, but he knows exactly what he's about to face. And we see his humanity in this moment. He's in agony over the fact that his friends are gonna abandon him and leave him alone that he's going to be suffering these things all by himself. His creation is going to flog him and beat him. They were, they're going to spit on him. They're going to kill him. And his father is going to turn his face away from him. I have a quote this morning from uh, Joni Erickson Tata about this scene, about what Jesus uh, is feeling, what he is expecting to happen. And it's just a great reminder of the, the weight that is put on Jesus during this scene. And this is what I want to capture as we go throughout our sermon this morning. And she says this. Uh, I think I have it up there. She says, they lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation an earthly foul odor begins to waft, not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father. He must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane, and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen worlds and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stole, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? And the father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. 
and two eternal hearts tear, their intimate friendship shaken to the depths. The Father accepted his sin for sin and was satisfied. This is what Jesus is about to step into. This is what he is feeling. And in steps his friend Judas. Intentions rise and chaos ensues. I don't think we actually realize what's happening in this scene. Because it's not just Judas and a couple of temple guards who come to arrest Jesus. But it's a mob. It's a crowd and what the Gospel of John calls a cohort or a band of soldiers. I had to look this up, but a band of soldiers consisted of 480 armed soldiers. Armed with swords and clubs, carrying lanterns and torches. You have temple guards and you have members of the Sanhedrin. They had to gather permission from a high up ranking officer to be able to go and arrest somebody in order to get this band acquired to go. This is not your normal arrest. They're expecting a resistance. They're expecting uh, maybe a miracle from Jesus. They're expecting a fight or an escape. And when, you get on, and when Judas arrives on this scene, tensions start to flare. Judas, a friend, and now a betrayer, he comes up and he kisses Jesus. Peter's blood he starts to boil a little bit and he tries to cut somebody's head off. At which point you have to imagine that this band of soldiers, this cohort of soldiers, gets into a position ready to attack or ready to defend themselves, ready for an escape made on Jesus' part. But instead, Jesus remains completely calm. Why? Because during this whole time, he is the one in control. He's 100% in control. He's the one who is the author of this scene. He is the one who has authority over it. And it's incredible to see how Jesus responds during this whole scene, during this whole story. So today my goal is to help us leave this building with being more amazed at who Jesus is and what he has done. So that we can leave this morning knowing what he has done for us and that we can mirror it for people around us. And I feel like there's so many different directions that this sermon could go in, but as I was preparing and I, as I was reading this, I was just struck by looking at Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is, how he carries himself, what he actually does in this moment. And there's two things that Jesus does that I found throughout our text that I want to take a deeper look at this morning. And the first one is that Jesus displays love. And the second is that Jesus displays authority. So first... Jesus displays love. And I want the Joni Erickson Tata quote to kind of be the background and the backdrop of this whole scene because we have to know how Jesus is feeling during this whole thing. We have to know where he's going and why he displays love and authority in that. So the first thing Jesus does is he loves, which is insane because he's the one getting arrested. He's the one being taken away like a criminal. Even in this moment of total abandonment, of betrayal, of agony, of sadness, of frustration, he chooses to love and stay true to who he has always said he is. You have to remember, he's not the Messiah that the Jewish culture thought he was going to be. He did not come 
to deliver his people through military actions and means. So this band of soldiers, it was not necessary. This mob, this crowd, swords and clubs, torches and lanterns, all of it was not necessary. So this mob, his people whom he has created, has to be such a sad sight for our Lord to see. And during, it of all, during all of it, Jesus chooses to continue to pour out love on his people. And the first person he loves is Judas, his friend, and now his betrayer. Listen to what Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14 says in reference to this. It says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, for then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, for then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walk in the throng. So the hurt that Jesus is feeling is real. It stings. This is a friend of his coming to him in betrayal. Judas approaches Jesus, and, he, and Jesus loves him by asking him a question. In Luke's record of this story, Jesus says to Judas, he says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And this is how Jesus loves him. He is giving Judas an out. He's giving Judas a chance to repent. He's, giving, uh, he's trying to convict Judas He's trying to reach into Judas's heart before it's too late. He knows that Judas is confused. He knows that evil and sin has entered into him, and all it's done is corrupt and confuse him. We know just in a couple of hours, Judas comes back with the money, and he gives it up, and he says, I've done a horrible thing, and he goes and he hangs himself. Jesus knows that's going to happen, and he knows the guilt and the shame that Judas is going to feel and he says, Judas, are you sure? Is this really what you want to do? He's showing love to him before it actually happens. And he says, Judas, are you sure this is what you really want to do? It really is a sad, sad picture of what evil and what sin can do to our hearts, what it's capable of, because it gets in there and it confuses us and it causes us to doubt. Destru it causes destruction in us. And this is what happens to Judas because if he truly trusted in Jesus' words, he would have known that even this betrayal, even this sin that he was committing, it would have been forgiven on the cross. Jesus was going to the cross for the Judases of this world. He was going to the cross for the people who were betraying him. If only Judas would have listened. And so he says, Judas, are you sure this is what you want to do? We can learn a great deal from Judas. It's not closeness. It's not proximity to Jesus that saves us. It's not coming to church every Sunday. It's not checking the boxes of reading your Bible or praying. It's not having the right answers or giving enough money away. Because Judas walked and he ate with Jesus. He was sent out with the other disciples two by two with the power of Jesus' name to proclaim him and to heal people. He witnessed miracles. He witnessed the teachings of Jesus. He spent the last three years in closeness and intimate relationship with Jesus. 
but he never has a personal trust in him. He never has a personal, a personal trust and obedience that Jesus is actually who he says he is. Luke 22, 3 says that Satan enters into Judas. And we have to understand that Satan does not enter into innocent people. Judas loved other things. And in his case, it was money. In his case, it was status. He loved these things more than he loved and trusted in Jesus. And he covers it with an external closeness and an external relationship with Jesus. And so my question this morning is, what do you and I love more than Jesus? I think to answer that question, you have to start thinking about, what do you think about more? What do you spend more money on? What do you spend more time on thinking about more than you do Jesus? What do you have in the number one priority box than Jesus? Because if we learn anything from Judas, it's that Satan will get in and he will use that to confuse us. He will use that to cause doubt in us. And so my encouragement to you is to get rid of it. It's not worth it. Put it back on the back burner and let Jesus be the number one thing in your life. It's not worth it, and we see that in the life of Judas. The second act of love that we see in our text is the love that Jesus shows to his disciples. And I love how he does this, because right before the disciples flee and abandon him and leave him all alone, he loves them and he cares for them. But you kind of have to slow this scene down a little bit. You have to put it into its context Jesus, he gives his hands over to be arrested. And at that very moment, this cohort or band of soldiers would have moved towards the disciples to arrest them as well. They weren't just coming after Jesus. And so here's how I kind of imagine this scene going on. It's not in our scripture, but with them all leaving, this is kind of what I see. Peter, who has his sword on him, he has to drop it and he's gone. His brother Andrew's probably not far behind him, behind him in his footsteps. You have James and John who uh, can't get out of there fast enough to abandon Jesus. You have Philip who has gone before them. You have Nathan who's never moved faster in a direction in his life to get away from this scene. You have Thomas who's doubting the whole thing. He's backing up since the very beginning. You have Matthew and Thaddeus who are probably scrambling over each other, pushing each other out of the way to get out and to get away. You have Simon the Zealot, who probably sticks around the longest because he knows what a fight looks like. But once he sees all of his other friends, he's hot on their heels as well. You have James, who he goes off into a different direction. And then you have this strange guy in verse 51 to 52 who gets caught, but he maneuvers out of his clothes and he runs away naked. The intensity, the quickness of how they abandoned Jesus without a second thought is crazy. Once again, the disciples running away and scattering like ants had to have been such a sad, sad sight for Jesus to see. And this comes hours after Peter and all of the disciples actually say to Jesus, even if we must die, we will not abandon you. We will not leave you. And it's in that conversation that Jesus shows them love. Mark 14, 27, it says this. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. So when the, di- when the disciples reconvene, when they group back together, what do you think they start to feel and think? Shame, guilt, embarrassment. They see that everyone's abandoned Jesus. Maybe a little bit of anger, sadness, fear. But then one of them had to have said, don't you remember what Jesus just told us? He just told us that we were all going to flee. We were all going to fall away. And he's coming back to us. Jesus is still going to the cross for us. I mean, that is a great amount of love. Jesus is predicting it beforehand so that when they come back together, they don't have to feel those things. And here's what I get from this. You and I, we're no different. We're like Judas. We betray him. We're like Peter and the rest of the disciples. We abandon him. We will fall short. We do sin. We do make mistakes. But Jesus still goes to the cross for you and for me. And what that should do is give us great confidence in our weaknesses and in our failings, in our, the places that we sin. Because our mistakes, they are no shock to God. He is not surprised by anything that we do. Matter of fact, he still goes and he dies for them. What that should do is embolden us to actually get after the kingdom, live for him. Because if he can be glorified in our shortfalls and in our sins, how much more so can he be glorified when we live for him? I mean, look at what the disciples are capable of and what they actually do. Here in our story, they leave Jesus, they abandon him all alone, they forsake him. And just in a couple of weeks, they are standing in the streets proclaiming God's name at the literal expenses of their lives. What what changes in their life from them running away naked and ashamed of Jesus to standing up in the streets in the accounts of Acts proclaiming the name of Jesus? That's because... Jesus does return like he said he does. And he comes and he visits the disciples. And he says, guys, I told you. I was coming back to you. Jesus does not kick them to the curb for failing or running away. Jesus does not shame them. And he says, because of that, now you can get after it. Now you can live. I died for your failures. I died for your shame and your embarrassment that you had. So now you can go live for me. They also receive the Spirit. They receive the power of the Holy Spirit. They receive the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And they receive the finished work of Jesus in those few weeks. Guys, we have that this morning. We know the finished work. We have the same power of the Spirit living within us, just like the disciples did. So my question to you, though, this morning is, are you living your life associated with Jesus? Or are you living like the disciples where you could or want to run away ashamed, not wanting to be associated with him for fear of being caught or fear of the shame that it brings. Because especially in our culture today, if people find out you're a Christian, sometimes that can be a risky move. Your status, your, the people's opinion about you is at stake when they find out that you're a Christian. 
Or are you confident enough in Jesus? Are you confident enough in the Spirit to stick with him and to say, I am with Jesus and be associated with him? So those are the two movements of love that we see Jesus portray in this passage, one for Judas and one for his disciples. The second thing that we see Jesus have or do is that he displays great amounts of authority. All right, he might be the one getting arrested. He might be the one uh, being led to the cross, but he's in charge of this entire scene. What seems like a massive failure to the world is Jesus displaying authority. Here's this proclaimed Messiah, a Messiah who was not supposed to die, who was not supposed to uh, be gentle or lowly or being led to the cross. According to everyone, the Messiah was supposed to win and conquer, not be led to a slaughter and be arrested and led to a cross. It doesn't make any sense. What looks like God's plan failing is actually God's plan coming to fruition, And coming to the greatest moment of his glory being displayed. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 49. He says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. What scriptures? Psalm 118, which which we read this morning. The stone that the builders rejected. Zechariah 13, 7. His sheep will be scattered. Zechariah 11, 13. They bought him with 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has, left, has lifted his heel against me. Acts 2, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In Isaiah 53, like a lamb, he is being led to the slaughter. These are the scriptures that are just about this scene. Everything else is about Jesus going to the cross. It's all about him. He knows what's happening and he's in charge of it because he has written it into existence. In response to this, John Piper says, God, Jesus, he foresaw and he did not prevent. Therefore, included in his plan is that his son would be rejected, hated, traded, abandoned, denied, condemned, spit upon, flogged, mocked, pierced, and killed. He planned this. He let this happen. Why? So that you and me could be saved. So what happens to Jesus is horrible. It's evil at its finest. Judas does commit a great, heinous sin against Jesus, but but God ordains that sin. God ordains what John Piper calls the most spectacular sin for his glory and for the redemption of his children. Here's what I think we can learn from this. If if he can use Judas's heinous sin for his glory, then he can use mine and he can use yours for his glory. I was recently told to never let a good sin go to waste. And when I heard this piece of advice, it sounded a little confusing to me. A, a good sin? That doesn't make any sense. But listen to what Martin Lord Jones has to say that uh, captures what um, a good sin looks like. And this is kind of a longer quote, but I think it it puts it into perspective. For the believer, the all things in Romans 8.28 includes even our falling into sin, even our backsliding. God can turn it to the advantage of the Christian. When we truly repent, he stands ready to forgive us. The prodigal son knew much more about his father after he came back than he ever knew before he left home. He thought he knew before he left home, but he didn't. 
It was when he, received, when he was received back, when he saw his father running to meet him, when he was yet a long way off and embracing him, he never knew anything about this before. So you see, though he was quite wrong in leaving home and going to that foreign land and all he did there in his riotous living, it was all wrong. But he was a very much better man at the end than at the beginning. He knew more about sonship. He knew more about his father. He knew more about his father's love. Now that's the kind of way in which this works out. And in other words, it brings the Christian to see his constant need of grace, his constant need of watchfulness and of care. And all of that, of course, is very good for us. It is part of our development, our growth in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. So we are able to assert that even when he falls into sin or becomes a backslider, when he is restored, this has been for the Christian's good. Now, there you get a glimpse into this many-sided grace of God. What a wonderful thing it is that even our defeats can be turned for our good. God takes hold of this thing and he uses it in that way to bring us nearer to himself and to give us the knowledge of himself that we otherwise would have never had before. So Jesus' authority over sin is on full display in this scene. So let's be reminded that Jesus is God over our sins. He knows them. He's not shocked by them. He dies for them, and he still wants to use me and you. I think this should not give us license to sin, but it gives us a great freedom from sin, and it gives us an even greater freedom to live more and more for Jesus. So I'm going to close with one final piece of Jesus's authority being displayed. His victory over Satan. It's encouraging to remind ourselves that sin and evil is not winning. It is not reigning. And we see that here in our story. Where it might seem like the arrest of Jesus is a win for sin or is a win for Satan, it's quite the opposite. Satan is fully present in our text. Uh, Luke mentions that Satan has entered into Judas. He is presently involved why is Satan doing this? Why is he there? Because he knows that Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection would be the beginning of the end to him. He's known ever since Genesis 3 that when Jesus goes to the cross and is crucified, it's the end of Satan. So why is he there? Why is he doing this? Does he not understand what he's actually doing? It's because Satan has tried everything. Satan has seen his efforts of keeping Jesus from the cross failing miserably. When Jesus steps into this world, Satan takes him in Matthew 4 to the wilderness or to the desert and he tempts him. He offers him the world. He offers him power. He's basically saying to Jesus, whatever you do, do not die. Please do not die. So now we're at the end of Jesus' ministry and Satan is not able to keep Jesus from the cross. And so if he can't keep Jesus from the cross, he is going to do everything in his power to make it as miserable as possible. He will cause betrayal and abandonment. He will cause evil men to flog him and crucify him. He's going to make it as physically and emotionally horrible, as horrible as possible. But whatever he does, he cannot keep, he cannot stop Jesus from going to the cross and saving you and saving me. So as we step out into this broken world, 
today and tomorrow, throughout this week, in your house or at school, in your workplaces, Satan is not winning. He cannot win. Jesus is the victor. He has already won it from this scene going to the cross. So my encouragement to you is live out of that truth. Get after it because the battle has already been won through Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this morning once again of what it looks like um, to live in your presence, of how you display this great amount of love in one of the worst moments of your life, in one of the saddest moments of your life. Lord, you still are in control. And even in this moment, you win and you love us. And so we thank you for that. May this give us encouragement, may it embolden us to leave this building more in awe of you, wanting to tell those around us what you've done. May this be a good reminder of who you are and what you've done for us. I pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So in light of the good news of the gospel of Jesus, receive this word of benediction then as he now sends us into the world to do all that John John has called us to from that text. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Mm -hmm.